0: Welcome to the All Saints Community Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a community of worship and formation on Mission with Jesus. We are committed to being rooted in the scriptures and the historic Christian faith and to kingdom life in the power of the Holy Spirit. As you listen, may you be encouraged and empowered to know the Lord Jesus and make Him known. For more information on who we are, visit allsaintsokc.org or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at ASCCOKC. Hopefully no one fell asleep. So the title today is River People. You'll understand what that is as we keep going forward probably pretty quick. And uh, it's not a good summer title. I know we're in the middle of that right now, but... Um, But yeah, why don't we go and open our Bibles to John chapter 7, and we're going to start with a small portion of Scripture here. And We have some Bibles in the rows as well, if you would like to turn. We also have it up here on the screen. And it says this, on the last day of the festival, the great day, while Jesus was standing there, he cried out, let anyone who is thirsty come to me. And let the one who believes in me drink. As the scripture has said, out of the believer's heart shall flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the spirit, which believers in him were to receive. For as yet there was no spirit, because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is the word of the Lord. How many of you in here are art enthusiasts? Okay, there are a few hands going up. How many people in here know nothing about art? Okay, a few more hands going up. I'm somewhere right in the middle. I know nothing about art, but at the same time love it deeply. And uh, I'm learning to love it even more because for some reason we as human beings learn to find expressions to communicate realities that are a little bit deeper than what we see on the surface. And one form of art that I've really come to love is post-impressionism. Now that's a nice fancy word, but it's basically like guys like Van Gogh and things of that nature. And I do have a slide that I want to put up here. So this is a pretty well-known piece of art. This is Van Gogh's Starry Night. How many of you have seen this? Okay, probably most people in the room. So this is Van Gogh's Starry Night. Now when we look at this piece of art, this is not the way a Starry Night really looks if we were to see it. And many of us in here, because we live in Oklahoma, have probably seen one that has taken our breath away. But the thing is, if we were to try to explain to somebody the experience of seeing the scenery like a starry night where the stars are popping and it's, in, it's influencing us on the inside, we wouldn't do it justice. We could even try to take a picture of it and it wouldn't come out very well. could try to paint a literal landscape of it, and it may be awe-inspiring, but there's still something deeper that we do not see. This painting is trying to communicate that deeper reality. If stars really looked like that, you and I would need to run and hide pretty quick, (laughs) but they don't. However, when we see this, we see awe. We see wonder. We see something that is actually present in a literal starry night, yet at the same time doesn't literally look like this, which means that what we see on the surface has layers. There are deeper truths, deeper realities to what we experience. Now, my goal today is not to give an exposition on art. There's a reason for this. We just read a passage from the Gospel of John. And John does what Van Gogh does here masterfully in the scriptures. He writes a gospel, which we have four gospels in scripture, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are what are known as the synoptic gospels. They record a lot of similar events. They're giving us details into the life and the story of Jesus. But John is doing something differently. If you take time to read the gospel of John, you will find that there are very few things said there that are said in the other gospels. It's because John is trying to communicate to us the reality of who Jesus is. If we were to look at him when he was here, we would see a human being. But when John's looking at him, he sees the human being and more. And so he's trying to pull back the veil and show us a deeper truth, a deeper reality that may even be more real than what we see on the surface. And so everything that John writes has layers. And so hopefully today we can kind of unfold some of the layers here and see what John is trying to lead us into. And hopefully we discover that he's actually trying to lead us into an encounter and the experience of the person of Jesus himself, the living word of God who is before all creation, who formed and fashioned creation in his own image and then pours himself into that creation by taking on flesh and living life with us. John says it this way, we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, and the unique one who is in the bosom of God, he has made him known to us. And so hopefully this is what this will lead us into today. So John chapter 7 takes place in the middle of this event known as the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, this is one of three major Jewish feasts that the Jewish people celebrated yearly. They had several that they did, but this was a major one. And the Jewish people really liked to party. (laughs) They had festivals for almost everything. But there were significant ones that helped lead the people of God into living into the story of God that had started from the very beginning. And this was one of those festivals. So the purpose of the Jewish festivals, I have a couple points here. The first is this. The Jewish festivals were God's invitation to the following generations to live into his story of redemption for all of creation. In Leviticus chapter 23, God commands his people to celebrate some specific things so that the generations who were to follow would remember God's faithfulness to them, but also help them think about where he was taking them in the future. And so the festivals were actually a merger point in time. The past and future would come together and they would meet in the present as these people would remember the story that God had laid out before them. How many of you know what the tabernacle is? Yeah. It's the place where God chose to dwell with his people in the wilderness, which means God wanted a home, and he created a home with the people that he loved. He wanted a physical one, not just one that could not be seen. And the center of the people of God was this home, this place of meeting and encountering the presence of the one who called them their own. So they would center their tents around the tabernacle. But there were other events that took place around this festival. Later on in the story of scripture, when we get to 2 Chronicles, we find Solomon dedicating a physical building, which is now taking the place of the tabernacle. And his dedication of the temple takes place on this festival, the Feast of Tabernacles. Later on, the people of Israel are taken into captivity. The temple is destroyed, but then they are allowed back into Jerusalem. And in Nehemiah 8, the temple has been rebuilt, and Ezra rededicates the temple, reads from the law, and the people are drawn in repentance back to their union with their God. This took place on the Feast of Tabernacles. And so, when the Jewish people would celebrate this feast, they were drawn back to remembering God's faithfulness to them as his people, but also his invitation to them to know him and his presence among them. And so, when they would celebrate this festival, the Jewish people would come to Jerusalem and they would actually set up tents. And for an entire week, they would relive the story of the people of Israel wandering in the wilderness, but their tents were facing the temple. And for the first six days of this festival, they would remember what God did in the wilderness. The fact that he provided water from a rock. He provided manna when they needed food. Their clothes didn't wear out. It grew with them when they walked throughout the years. God made sure they had everything that they needed because he cares about his people When God shows up, he makes sure that his people don't lack. But not only that, he uses them as a testimony to the rest of the nations that this God who formed the world is also the one who wants to make it new again. And so the people become a prophetic testimony of what God is wanting to do in this world. And so for six days, they would remember this. Their ceremonies would focus on this. But then on the seventh day, they would look toward the future. Because not only would they remember God's faithfulness to them when he was present with them in the tabernacle and when the temple was dedicated, but they longed for something more. They could look at the world around them and they realized that the world was not as God wanted it to be. And even in Jesus' time, even though they had a temple, the presence of God was seen to be absent because the Ark of the Covenant was no longer there. The presence that made them who they were, they wanted it back in that temple, and so they would long for that. So they began to look to these people called the prophets. And we have these guys in Scripture. They're kind of odd people if you read any of them. They do some interesting things, things that you and I probably shouldn't do in our day-to-day life. And they write some things down that make us question their sanity quite often. And one of these prophets is a guy by the name of Ezekiel. Now, John is fascinated with Ezekiel. He alludes to him quite often. He doesn't quote him a lot, but a lot of the imagery that shows up in the book of Ezekiel shows up in the gospel of John. And Ezekiel's kind of a weird guy. If you've ever read the book of Ezekiel, you'll see these things like wheels within wheels, uh, these creatures that have eyes all around them. It's almost like the guy's tripping on something, but we know he's not. But the latter end of the book of Ezekiel is focused in on something specific. The last few chapters, Ezekiel starts prophesying about a restored temple. And this just isn't any temple. It's a temple where the fullness of God's presence is realized. And this temple also creates a new creation around it. And so a passage that was really important to this festival is Ezekiel 47. And we're going to turn there real quick. And we have it up here on the screen. We're going to read quite a few verses. So um, we'll see where we go with this. So it's verses 1 through 12. And it says this, then he brought me back to the entrance of the temple. This is Ezekiel. He's been taken by a messenger of God to see everything that God was wanting to do among the nation of Israel um, in the promised fulfillment of God's kingdom. Then he brought me back to the entrance of the temple. There, water was flowing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. And the water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around to the outside of the outer gate that faces toward the east, and the water was coming out on the south side. Going on eastward with a cord on his hand, the man measured 1,000 cubits and then led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. Again, he measured 1,000 and led me through the water, and it was knee deep. Again, he measured 1,000 and led me through the water, and it was up to the waist. Again, he measured 1,000, and it was a river that I could not cross, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be crossed. He said to me, mortal, have you seen this? Then he led me back along the bank of the river. As I came back, I saw on the bank of the river a great many trees on the one side and on the other he said to me, this water flows from the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah, and when it enters the sea, the sea of stagnant waters, the waters will become fresh. Now, he's using the geography near Jerusalem here. The stagnant waters that he's talking about is actually the Dead Sea. He has a vision of this sea in which things have been decomposing and, and, and nothing could flow from it, and he says, that water that seems dead and that everything seems to die and it becomes fresh again. So the stagnant waters, the waters will become fresh. Wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be very many fish once these waters reach there. It will become fresh and everything will live where the river goes. People will stand fishing behind, beside the sea from En Gedi to Eniglaim. It's fish... It will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of a great many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt. This is a very strange verse. We'll come back to it a little bit later. On the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month, because the water for them flows from the sanctuary their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing now pay attention to the descriptions here where else have we seen something like this genesis chapter 2 god plants a garden in the middle of his new creation and this garden is the dwelling place of god it's also the place where he puts man In the middle of this garden is the tree of life. Its leaves never fail, its fruit never fails, and from this garden flows a river that breaks into four tributaries, which is meant to bring life to the rest of creation as well. But in the center of the garden is a place where man gets to see God face to face. Notice in this text in Ezekiel 47, we hear a lot of talk about the temple, a building, a dwelling place for God, but at the very end, It says that the life that the trees experience come from the river because the river flows not from the temple, but from the sanctuary. Why does he change the wording? Because the sanctuary is a special place within the temple that was known to be the dwelling place of the most holy presence of God, the place where God's face was. And to be welcomed to look on God's face is to be welcomed into intimate union with the God who formed the worlds. If you were to turn and gaze at your neighbor's face for a period of time, even if you never say a word, you would come away from that moment feeling like you know them a lot deeper than what you did before. Because when we look on the face of somebody else, something deep is communicated Ezekiel is telling us that the life of the river flows from the deep place of union with his people, and that its source comes from the place where God dwells. And the hope of the people of God is the reestablishment of what God wanted in the beginning the Garden of Eden. This is the life that is being offered from this river. So, going back to John 7. During the Feast of Tabernacles, the first six days, people would remember what God did in the wilderness when he led his people through there. But on the seventh day, they would look to the future. They would look toward the promise that God had of the world that was to come. And the priest would go to this place called the Pool of Siloam, and he would draw water, and he would progress from that pool back to the temple and he would pour both water and wine from the altar. And he would read this passage to create an expectation in the heart of the people of what God wanted to do. Now let's get to Jesus. The beginning of John chapter seven is really interesting. It starts with Jesus arguing with his brothers. They're telling him, hey, if you are who you say you are, you need to make yourself more well-known, and Jesus tells them, I know the time when I need to do that. Don't tell me what to do, basically, is what he's saying. He gets into a pretty feisty argument with them, but then Jesus leaves that place. He goes to Jerusalem to celebrate this festival, and everything leading up to the passage that we read is Jesus arguing with people about his identity. In other words, they're questioning who he is. There's conflict, there's friction. This is John's way of communicating to us that there is darkness in the world that is wanting to silence the light that comes into the world through Jesus. But the cool thing about it is is that the light is never put out. John chapter one, and the light pierced the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. And so leading up to this passage, Jesus is being pressed on every side about who his identity is, who he's supposed to be, and then all of a sudden on the seventh day, when this ceremony is going on, Jesus stands up in front of the altar, and I imagine the water flowing beneath him. He's doing something no one does. It's very risky, and he stands up and said what we read, anyone who's thirsty, come to me and drink. For anyone who believes in me, out of their innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And when he says this, everybody knows what he's talking about. He's standing there, the word made flesh, the face of God himself, saying, I'm the new temple. I am the dwelling place of God. And I'm the source of the river of life that you need. I'm also the fulfillment of what's coming. Here, Jesus is reaching into the past. I love this part. He's reaching into the past. He's pulling it into the present. He's reaching into the future, and he's pulling it into the present, assuming the entire story of God within himself, and then out of that moment flows a river of life. This is what he's leading us into. This is what he's trying to show the people who are listening. And it's not surprising that it nearly gets him killed. Because after he says this, all of a sudden the crowd is divided. Some begin saying, wow, this is the guy. This is the one we've been waiting for. This is the fulfillment of Ezekiel's vision. He's actually here. And then others are going, no, he's a blasphemer. How could he be that? And it actually says that they begin talking about killing him here. This leads to his death. But John does something really interesting. And we don't have to turn here, but I want to talk about it for a moment. And John chapter 19 is the death of Jesus on the cross. And at the end of Jesus' life, hanging on that cross, John tells us something really interesting and kind of strange. He says that in order to fulfill all of Scripture, Jesus cries out, I'm thirsty. The one who supplies the water that quenches other people's thirst is thirsty. Kind of interesting. And the guards put a sponge on a hyssop branch, dip it in bitter wine, probably the wine they themselves drink, and they put it to Jesus' lips. And as soon as he drinks from the wine, it says that he gives up his spirit. He dies. But after he dies, a guard comes over to check if he's dead. And he pierces his side with a spear. And blood and water flow out. Water and wine. John's pulling us back to John 7. At the point where Jesus assumes in himself the bitterness of those that are around him. Everything they could give, which was not good, he pours out with the river of life saying, I want to make all things new again. This is a different image of God than what other people had had before. This is a God who is rich in mercy, full of grace, who longs to make new what is broken, whose version of judgment is, let me restore, not let me break. And when you break me... Guess what I do? I give you life. And it's John's way of welcoming all of creation into this moment of receiving the river of life that had been promised since before Jesus even walked the planet, who he is the fulfillment of. He is the source of the river. And so let's look at some of the characteristics of this river for a moment We're going to pull this from Ezekiel 47, and I think we have a couple of slides. Yeah. So here we go. Ezekiel 47. The river flows from the temple of God's dwelling place, his creation. We talked about that for a moment. The place where God makes his home is the source of his spirit, the place where his life flows. And it's not just any life. It's his own life, his own person. And the life of the world that is to come. Now, when Jesus was present, he was this. But what is this now? You and I. The temple of God, the dwelling place of God among his creation. The river always increases, becoming a river that cannot be crossed. In other words, it's never diminished. Nothing can diminish the presence of God's spirit that has been poured out on his own creation. Nothing can overwhelm it. The trees planted by the river flourish. Psalm 1, it talks about being a tree planted by the rivers of life, who bears its fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither. And everything that you do prospers. The trees planted by the river flourish. What is stagnant becomes fresh again. The river swarms with an abundance of living things and food for those who cast their nets. In other words, wherever the river is present, there's always more than enough. But it's not only more than enough for the people of God. It's more than enough for everybody. Meaning this is supposed to overflow to the world around us. Everything will live where the river flows. Just like Jesus being in a place where darkness was trying to to, to surround him and press in and the light could not be quenched. Wherever the river of life is, no matter what is going on around, the life of that river cannot be stopped. Which means if we are in a world that looks really dark, The fear of that world is no longer something that identifies us as a people. This identifies us as the people of God. We're river people. (laughs) Let's go to the next slide. What is dead and decomposing is left for salt. Now, this is going back to that verse in Ezekiel 47, verse 11, where it talks about the marshes that aren't brought back to life and that what is in them is left for salt. Salt's an interesting thing in scripture. It shows up a lot in the Old Testament, and it's usually associated with God's judgment. Not a very fun thing to talk about. But the interesting thing about God's judgment is that it's also purification. God's heart, God's intent is not to destroy, but to refine. And so when something is decomposing and it's left for salt in the marshes, it all of a sudden becomes something that seasons... The ground, meaning the ground becomes fruitful, which means that nothing is wasted, by the way. Everything in our story, both as a corporate people of God, the history of the church, but also the history of our lives individually, those things that seem to be dead and have been marked by God's own purification, it becomes something that seasons the ground, and it is also involved in God's new world. Nothing is wasted. Only God can do that. We waste a lot of things. He doesn't. Nothing is wasted. The fruit of its trees are fresh and never fail. It makes me think of, I think it's John 15, where he talks about, I've chosen you and appointed you that you should bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. And they are healing for the nations, because the source of the river is the sanctuary, the place where we are welcome to gaze on the face of God, to look him into his eyes, and to know him intimately. The face that could not be seen once before is now unveiled to us, and we get to see it fully. So, what does this mean for us? I want to turn to one more place, and that's Revelation chapter 22. I promise this is the last thing we're going to read. Revelation 22, we're only going to read a few verses, and it's verses one through four, and it says this. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Notice that there is no temple here, by the way. There's a throne, because God has come to fully dwell with his people On either side of the river is the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Nothing accursed will be found there anymore. But the throne of God and the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him and they will see his face, the sanctuary. There it is. And his name will be on their foreheads. What if... Even though this is a hope we expect will come more fully at one point in time, what if this is what we see in Jesus in John 7? And this is the picture of who we are now. We stand as a people who gaze on the face of Jesus, called to the point of worship A people whose hearts are postured in reverence of our God, but also in deep intimacy of the one who loves us beyond words can comprehend, who sees us fully, by the way, both the things we like about ourselves and the things we don't like about ourselves, and says, hey, you get to stand here and look at me, fully seen, fully known, fully exposed in front of him, and fully accepted accepted in the presence of our king, staring at his face, gazing on him, worshiping him, and then the river of life flows to us, bringing healing wherever things need to be healed in us, but then it begins to flow out of us to bring healing to the rest of the world. We become deposits of the new kingdom that God is bringing into this world. We are river people. Now, I had a couple more slides, but I think we're going to forego. Yeah, if you want to write that down, you can. But I think I'm going to make this a little brief because time is running short. The Vineyard Movement, if you're familiar with it, is a movement that is rooted in worship. From the very beginning, its leaders, John Wimber and others, made sure that the people that were part of this movement were a people that knew how to sing to God and not just sing about him. In other words, they were a people that gazed on the face of Jesus. That's the foundation of who we are as a church. We are a people who gaze on his face. But it didn't end there. The movement began to turn into a healing movement, meaning that the people who gazed on the face of Jesus, who were centered in the worship of the one who was and is and is to come, the worship of the lamb who is worthy, began to move out with hands of healing to minister life to those who were around. This is what the movement became. This is who we still are. And this is what we are being called to. A people who gaze on the face of Jesus, Drawn to him in worship and become outlets and hands of healing for the world around us in every way, shape, and form in bodies, hearts, and minds. The river of God is made known in and through his river people. (laughs) That is who we are. And so today, I would like to close with another moment of prayer And kind of an exercise to just welcome this life to us in a new way. Is that okay with everybody?